I'm Renata Sago, and this is Life After Pulse from WMFE. It's been one year since 49 people were killed and more than 50 injured after a gunman opened fire at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Even if you personally did not lose someone or somebody that you know wasn't injured, you're still affected by this because somebody you know knows somebody that was killed or injured. I don't want one, I don't want two, I want the five of them to be here with us. I want to enjoy them, hug them, laugh with them. When are we going to stop this? We have to give them peace. Everybody wants to continue to spend money on, you know, uh, memorials and, and, and all this, but you have to think about what are you doing to these people emotionally. Hate and fear spread against anyone, whether it's Jews, Muslims, Christians, or, or anyone. It's not good. It's not good. This episode is about the effects the Pulse nightclub shooting has had on the lives of those intimately involved and those not involved at all. This episode is about identity, the burdens and triumphs that come with being gay, Muslim American, Latino, and a victim of a tragedy. Okay, so I'm at D Magazine in Kissimmee. Jessica Silva walks me past the front desk, past some women with wet hair chit-chatting to each other, past a sign that reads, Love Always Wins, then past large posters of model-esque figures with perfect hair and makeup, towards a picture. It's of her only brother, Juan Rivera, and his partner, Luis Conde. Then she points to a chair. Everything that is in that chair belongs to him. That is his chair, his uh, mirror, and you're gonna see both of them together, like always. So her voice trembles a bit as she points to the product line Juan, whom she calls Pablo, and Luis launched together. Moisturizer, foundation, lipstick that lasts more than 48 hours, and clients a Rolodex deep. This is their legacy. My brother is the one that put all the, the ideas. When he decided to do something, he didn't think it twice. He decided to open this to do his own line. And Conde is the one that will put all the sparkle. Let's do it here and we're going to do it this way. And this is going to be awesome and everything is going to be like, let's buy uh, flowers, let's buy sprinkles, let's buy whatever it has to be there. Like as, as soon as they knew you, you were part of his family or part of our family. See, Juan had left Puerto Rico to pursue his lifelong dream of opening a salon. He lived to beautify women. With his mother, Angelita, as a stylist, he ran the salon for 10 years. It was like one was working in the left side and my mom was working in the right side. She was looking to her back and he was there. She's my mom. Angelita. Yeah. She says she can't talk. She's crying. Silva and her mother lost Juan, Luis, and three close friends in the nightclub shooting. For them, reopening the salon at a new location was important to keep Juan and Luis's memories alive. They reopened it in December 2016 with help from a cousin who left her own salon in Puerto Rico to come to Central Florida and three other stylists. 
I personally was ready to do it after two weeks because for Juan, he didn't, no one gave him anything. So everything that you see here was work, was hard work. This is therapy for Silva. It's added to the counseling she and her two sons are getting regularly. She's unplugged her television and limits her social media usage. And she talks to Juan. Every single day. What are you saying? Everything. I fight with him. <laughs> we t I talk to him. I cry and I explain to him everything that I'm feeling. When Silva talks about her brother, she uses present tense. The salon is her connection. I have a door for each one of them. I have a door for Juan and I have a door for Conde. And I can't imagine that they're not going to come in. These are the kinds of emotions Professor Olga Malina talked through with survivors of the shooting in the weeks after. Feelings of loss, of guilt, of, of fear. Molina was part of the first major effort to bring mental health services to survivors and their families. She teaches social work at the University of Central Florida. That's where I visit her on a hot day. Hi, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Nice to meet you. You found me. It's not easy. This is a huge campus. It how wasn't. Molina worked with Hispanic oh. Family Counseling after the shooting. That's a mental health agency in Orlando. For years, the staff there have been providing services to Central Florida's Spanish speakers. The executive director came to a meeting at the University of Central Florida. And she came to tell us that she was getting, you know, hundreds of calls a day, hundreds of emails a day, lots of new clients coming in who were either families of the victims or the survivors themselves. And they were flooded with this amount of work, but they really were lacking bilingual, bicultural social workers. Now, the idea being that people who speak the language and understand the customs, the culture of a people, can help understand them better. They can identify certain illnesses and disorders that may manifest themselves differently based on cultural practices. I developed a Spanish-speaking group for clients because there weren't any Spanish-speaking groups uh, in, in, in all of Central Florida yet. And um, for, I had six group members. They each identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. We had um, a Puerto Rican, we had a, a one Mexican, we had two Venezuelans, we had a uh, Salvadoran, and we had a Guatemalan, and I'm Cuban. So we called ourselves the um, uh, Latino National Nations, uh, United Nations, I mean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> mm, that's deep and powerful. When we talk about... Also, there were five of them who were undocumented. Melina emphasized their commonalities. Even though there were differences in where they come from, they shared experiences as Latinos living in the United States. One commonality she observed were symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the things that we know about trauma and PTSD is that it isolates people. And because of the fact uh, that they were gay and had not come out, this isolated them even more. They were not able to sleep, they had nightmares, they had flashbacks, 
uh, they had um, uh, headaches, physical symptoms, as well as emotional symptoms uh, that they needed uh, treatment for. So one of the things that we first did was to refer them to psychiatrists. Some had not come out and didn't want their employers to know, so they lost their jobs and income to take care of daily expenses. And some couldn't afford medical treatment. All of this has prompted a new research project that Molina is conducting. It looks at the factors that contribute to community resiliency after a mass shooting. We're living uh, in a place here in Florida where there is not enough long-term mental health services. Incidents like this tell us that we are in great need for long-term services because this um, symptoms of PTSD, first of all, do not end in eight weeks. They do not end in two or three months. They can last for years, in some cases a lifetime. I don't know what I would have done without my, my therapist, honestly. She has helped me so much. Berto Sintron Capo lost his younger and closest brother, Angel. They both were supposed to go out to Pulse the night of the shooting, but at the last minute, he decided not to. Now he is in deep mourning. He avoids large crowds and feels suspicious of certain behaviors. I just be aware. I just be like, I say something suspicious. Uh, why, that walking, why that guy walking by himself? Why that girl walking by herself? Why, you know, why you got like, why you got a book bag? One way he's working through his mourning is through litigation. He's part of a group of shooting survivors and their families in a lawsuit that alleges that Omar Mateen's former employer, G4S, the large private security firm, is responsible for getting him a gun permit. The company falsified Mateen's psychological records and those of 1,300 other employees in order to get them permits. Lead attorney Andrew Romanucci. We hope to win money for them in order to replace some of the things that they've lost in life. Many of them, uh, the ones who've survived, have lost their jobs. They've got thousands and not hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills. Uh, they need to continue on with their lives. Romanucci goes on to say that the lawsuit is also advocacy and hopes that lawmakers will consider stricter gun laws to prevent mass shootings. Several lawsuits sprung up after Pulse, including one against Mateen's wife and another against Twitter, Facebook and Google for allowing the spread of information that might promote extreme violence. Cintron Capo is one of hundreds involved in litigation. His suit could yield millions. I know for a fact that it's not going to return my brother. I know but something's being done about it. Something needs to be done about it because how can just one person have so much power? Now, the One Orlando Fund emerged after the shooting and distributed more than $29 million to survivors and victims' families, with the families receiving up to $350,000 each. That money came from donations and experience with past tragedies, including the September 11th terrorist attack. But for Diana Font, that math just does not add up. The distribution of the money, I thought, was, was poorly planned. 
Font was one of the volunteers that rushed to the aid of families like Cintron Capos in the days after the shooting. She worked with members of the Puerto Rican Chamber of Commerce and Camping World Stadium in Orlando. So it was us, it was the African-American Chamber, it was the Hispanic Chamber. Um, we had all of those chambers and then they had the different resources. So they had an area that you would go in and you would meet either the parent or the sister. Um, somebody immediate had to be there. Because Individually, she helped more than 20 stuff. families, you know, all with very unique circumstances, some estranged, others unaware that their relatives really had been at the club that night or what their sexual orientation had been. These were people. These were people in our society. These were young people. They're all important. They all, the ones that died are just as important as the ones that are still surviving because they still need, those still need operations to correct things those need. You know, they've got mental issues. They have medical expenses that are still taking place, but you gave the dead more money, and they're dead. So what did you do, try to compensate the parent for the child's death? Across town, hundreds of men and women kneel in prayer. Kids without shoes run across the carpet of a large room with Arabic scriptures on the wall, past women in colorful scarves that drape down to their jeans and skirts. This is the Islamic Society of Central Florida. It's where more than 1,200 Muslims attend prayer each week, and Fatima Rami is one of them. See how much, how many people are here today, and it's not enough to accommodate everybody. Sometimes we have up to 2,000 people attending, and it's not enough room. This was the first mosque she came to when she moved to Central Florida more than 20 years ago. She's seen the whole physical landscape of the region change and the faces of the people who live here. That includes the growth of the Muslim community. There are now more than 50,000 Muslims from all over the world, from Bangladesh, Morocco, Pakistan, and India, some born in the United States. In the hours after the shooting, Rami joined other Muslim women to help the victims and their families. To be there with the families, I tell them, hey, I'm here with you. I mourn with you. That's the first thing, because it's just shock how this kept happening in my backyard, you know? And then knowing that he's a Muslim, I was like, oh my God, why is this happening? I mean, why? I felt, you know, sorry for myself being a Muslim, and, what's, and I know the backlash that is coming. Security was increased immediately at mosques in Orlando and across Florida due to fears of attacks against Muslims, and those proved to happen. There was reported vandalism of a mosque the day after the shooting in Sanford. Orlando was vandalized Monday when the spray-painted hashtag Stop the Hate was discovered on the building's exterior, authorities said. The Seminole County Sheriff's Office responded to a call Monday afternoon after someone at the Husseini Islamic Center in Sanford And that continued with verbal and physical assaults against Muslims in the months after. Here's the civil rights director of Florida's Council on American-Islamic Relations in early 2017 outside a mosque where a fire was started. And we have received confirmation that it is an arson incident. It is an incident that was intentionally set this morning. We're here today because of unity, because it is important to talk about support and standing there for each other. The community, because of current events, has fears that this may be a hate-related incident. But I want to make sure we talk about that message of togetherness. For Rami, the fear and judgment have been palpable. 
Myself, many people in my community and my children, because my daughter also, she wears the scarf, been verbally abused. So, just like, hey, go home. Hey, you're not welcome. Hey, you terrorists. My kids have been called terrorists at school, you know, from their friends, being bullied at school. That's another issue we have with Muslim children in different schools. One month after the Pulse nightclub shooting, Central Florida's Muslims gathered across from Orlando City Hall for a peaceful demonstration in which they condemned violence in the name of Islam. Here's some of that event. I remember being there with the crowd and seeing women in hijabs carrying signs that said, American Muslims for Peace. Several leaders spoke, many non-Muslims, some Jewish, others Latino and gay, standing in solidarity with the community. Imam Hafiz Tariq was there. Um, the issues that, are have, that, we, that Muslims are facing in different Muslim countries, uh, that is, um, uh, and to think that, you know, Islam is the problem. No, it's not the Islam is the problem. It's the political issues that, uh, that are, you know, shaping it up. Now, the imam preferred not to speak about his views on homosexuality, but what he did talk about is solidarity within the non-Muslim faith community that he's observed after Pulse. They came to sympathize with us and to make us feel comfortable that, you know, uh, they're not going to hold us responsible for what happened in that Pulse shooting. So that was nice. Getting others to sympathize and to create policies that protect American Muslims is also the focus. It's been the primary goal of Florida's Council on American-Islamic Relations of late. In the past five years, the statewide affiliate for the national group has grown exponentially in staff and support. It's opened offices across the state and offers free legal services to victims of hate crimes. I spoke with the executive director, Hassan Shibli, during his recent trip to Washington, D.C. So I'm walking back to uh, St. Mark's Episcopal Church behind the Supreme Court. We're just coming back uh, from meeting with members of Congress. I'm here with a delegation of about 400 members of the American Muslim community, and we're here lobbying uh, members of Congress on three critical issues. Number one, his focus now is working with the Trump administration to protect Muslims' civil rights. He explains much of his job is damage control for Muslim identity. It's part reactionary and part spreading awareness about the many shades. Of Islam. Unfortunately, the problem is a lot of people do tend to see the Muslim community as monolithic. Um, and, that, and that's well, frankly wrong. I think nobody has a monopoly on uh, what it means to be uh, an American Muslim. And what's beautiful is that, you know, one of the, one of the facts that I'm very proud of is that the American Muslim community is the most racially diverse community. And Islam itself embraces that kind of diversity. Islam teaches that if you're racist, if you look down on somebody because of their language or the color of their skin, you're not just insulting that person, you're actually insulting God who gifted that person with beauty through their difference. And the Quran speaks very clearly that from the signs of God's majesty and might and beauty and strength and wisdom is the differences in our tongues and in our uh, skin color and our ethnicity and our languages and that God made us into different nations and tribes, not so we can hate or judge each other, but so that we can learn from each other and find strength through these differences. So I think but that Islam difference only goes so far within care, according to its fellow Muslim critics. The most vocal counter, Muslims for Progressive Value, says the national group is intolerant of differences outside of the heteronormative gender and sexuality framework. They're very orthodox in their representation. 
Ani Zanaveld heads Muslims for Progressive Values, which advocates for equal rights that includes sexuality and gender. They claim to represent civil rights, but it depends on what kind of Muslim you are, and they only defend Muslims of a certain stripe. We don't share the same values at all. Zanaveld says her organization received a lot of support after polls from other small groups, but the major challenge has been finding ways for the diversity of Islam to have an even larger megaphone. Part of what is surfaced within the LGBT community is similar. The unveiling of the many shades of a group that mainstream society has understood as monolithic. It's just so complex and, and ever-evolving in so many ways. Hector Adames is a professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. He studies what's called the intersectionality of race, ethnicity, language, gender, and sexuality. So when we think about trying to understand and provide language to the complexities of individuals holding uh, multiple forms of oppressed identities, um, it's, it's important to think about intersectionality. And intersectionality is basically the ways in which um, different structural systems impact in the individual. So how does the impact of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, etc. impact individuals? And the, and, and the beauty and the power of the intersectional framework is that it helps us understand individuals who are oppressed from the outside in. And that was the takeaway after the shooting for larger LGBT advocacy groups such as Equality Florida. Hannah Willard, policy director for the organization, spent the first months of 2017 lobbying. Here she is in a phone call talking about how the group worked with the State Department to help families in Puerto Rico and the challenges of communicating the resources out there. Pulse was a real wake-up call for the LGBTQ movement to lift up the voices of people of color and make sure that our work is fully inclusive. You know, we, we, we realized we needed to be translating our press releases and translating our resources into Spanish and, and Creole and other languages to make sure that these resources were accessible. For Christine Leinenen, who lost her son Andrew and his partner in the shooting, her biggest takeaway has been the need for sweeping changes in federal and state gun laws. Here she is at the Democratic National Convention, one month after the shooting sparked demonstrations across the country and a sit-in in Congress. The weapon that murdered my son fires 30 rounds in one minute. An Orlando City Commissioner pointed out the terrible man. One minute for a gun to fire so many shots. Five minutes for Bell to honor so many lives. The effects of the shooting cannot ever be measured. But for those intimately involved, and even those not, burden is heavy and its wounds deep. Jessica Silva, who lost her brother Juan, says an anniversary, a one-year mark since his death, is just another pain to live with. Every month on the 12th is the same feeling. Every Sunday
is the worst day of the week. Even if I don't want to think about it, it's just like every Sunday I wake up crying and hoping that he will come home. I can imagine just commemorating or whatever you want to call it on the 12, 365 days without hugging him. Find more of our Pulse coverage at our website, WMFE.org. Thank you to local artist Ishmael Perez for the music. It's his piano interpretation of the song Love Make the World Go Round by Jennifer Lopez and Lynn manuel Miranda. I'm Renata Sago. This is Life After Pulse.